The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. When I was a kid, I took piano lessons for about a year. And then collectively, all who were involved, uh, including my parents, myself, and my piano teacher actually, all decided that piano lessons were not for me, that that was not going to be in my future. I was not good at all. And so we discontinued piano lessons. But during that year, I had the unfortunate opportunity of participating in a piano recital. Now, if any of you uh, ever took piano lessons as a child or did some kind of musical lessons, maybe you had the opportunity of participating in a recital. And that moment, even though I was only part of one, I think that will go down as the most terrifying moment of my entire childhood. Because think about it, when else in life do you perform something you are not good at after only about nine months to a year of practice in front of everybody by yourself. Usually when you're performing something, usually you have some kind of ability, some kind of skill, some kind of expertise, some type of excellence, but not piano recitals. They are pure torture. I mean, think in any other environment, maybe it's sports. You're like, hey, I'm just learning this sport and I'm going to play a game. But still, you're on a team. You can hide with 20 or 30 other players out there. Maybe you're in a play. Maybe you're in a children's choir. There are a bunch of other children around you at that time, but not a piano recital. A piano recital, you're sitting there. I remember just sitting there in, uh, was at the church that we went to. And I remember I was just sitting there on the pew and there's a whole line of us tortured children. And I remember just sitting there and waiting. And I had just this terror for days, knowing that I was going to go up on stage. It was not going to be good and everyone was going to see it. And I remember just sitting there. And day after day, waiting for this moment. And then I was there, and I was dressed up. I had a little suit on with a tie. And the first kid went, and I got more scared. And the second kid went, I got more scared. And then finally it came to me. I walked up the stairs, and I said, this is not going to be good. I sat down at the piano. I played it, and it was not good. And everyone, including me, was very relieved when it was over, okay? And I walked down. And I remember saying that I can still summon the actual emotions to this day of what it felt as my moment in front of everybody playing the piano came up. I remember the only way I can describe that emotion is sheer dread. There was nothing in me that wanted to do that. It was just compelling my body to walk up on the stage and sit down at that piano. It was just sheer torturous fear that I had to push through. And of all of the things I've thought back, what did I gain by doing that recital? I am not a piano player today. I can to this day play probably three songs on the piano. I will add one of them is with two hands, so that's something, okay? Um, I'm not a proficient piano player, but I did learn that something that is common to life is there are going to be frightful circumstances that the only thing we can do is just put one foot in front of the other and walk through them. There's just going to be something that's a part of life that we are going to have to learn. 
and that is courage. Life requires courage. Life from one circumstance to the next, one season to the next, one encounter to the next. There are difficult, hard, fearful things, things that make us afraid. And the bottom line, moving through that, it just requires courage. I want to show you a passage that talks about courage. And my prayer is that it inspires courage because it's inspired courage in me. This passage we're going to see in the Bible talks about the role of courage and the importance of courage. And um, actually, the beautiful thing is it's right there in the middle of the Christmas story. So if you would open in your Bible or your Bible app with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. We're looking at the Christmas story. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. Let's see what it says. Here's what it says. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So here's what's going on. Um, this is Joseph, as in Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. Joseph has a dream. In this dream, an angel appears to, to Joseph and says, you can leave Egypt, take Mary and baby Jesus, go back to Israel because Herod is dead. Now, there's clearly a backstory here. Uh, let's rewind the tape a little bit. We are in a series called Dreaming of Hope. We're going through the Christmas story. And in the Christmas story, the nativity story, um, Joseph has three dreams, three episodes involving dreams. And in these three episodes, an angel appears to him and gives him instruction. And in each of these dreams, um, there's something that, G that Joseph is asked to do. Well, last week in part two of our series, we looked at the second dream. And what had happened was these wise men had come from the east. They're sometimes known as the three kings. Um, they probably weren't kings, and we really don't know how many there were. But they were magi, wise men. They had come from the east. And they had gone through Jerusalem. They had seen a star in the sky. And the star was proclaiming, as they were interpreting, that a king was born to the Jews. So they go to where the king lived in Israel. And they went to King Herod. And they said, hey, where's the new king? We heard he was born. The challenge is, they had said that to King Herod the Great. The Herods were a line of kings that were notoriously suspicious and paranoid and tended to be very violent. And it was not uncommon for them to just kill or execute even their own family members in order to retain power. So when the wise men marched through Jerusalem and said to King Herod, hey, where's, where's this new king? You can imagine King Herod didn't like the sound of that. When the wise men left... They found Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. They were overjoyed. They bowed down. They worshiped Jesus. They left gold and frankincense and myrrh as gifts to him. And they went back to the east. Right after they left, Joseph had his second uh, dream where an angel appeared to him. And the angel said, you need to flee. You've got to get out of here. King Herod is searching for the child and wants to kill him. And it says, Joseph immediately got up took Mary and Jesus by night 
and traveled all the way to Egypt and, and lived there until Herod died. The passage we just left is on the other side of that time in Egypt where an angel appears to him and says, okay, you can get up, use the same word, rise, go back up to Israel, Herod is dead. Now, so far, when Joseph has received a dream and an angel appeared in that dream, Joseph has immediately obeyed. Let's see what Joseph does this time. Let's pick it up in verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now pause here with me for a second. Um, there's one more verse we're going to read in this episode. But here's what happened. Joseph gets a dream. Herod's dead. Go back to Israel. And once again, it says almost the exact same thing again. It says, Joseph got up, took Mary, took baby Jesus, and traveled back to Israel. So as they're going back, though, here's what it says. He's going back, one foot in front of the other. They're journeying. And his mind starts going. Because he knows that Herod's son, Archelaus, is currently reigning in Judea. That's the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem and Bethlehem is. And, be, and as he's traveling back, he's just full of fear. Because he knows Herod's son is reigning. Now, what it's helpful for us to know historically is that fear is well-founded. See, here's what happened. Herod dies, and as uh, Herod is, uh, as he's coming to the end of his life, just a few days before Herod dies, Herod changes his will. This is like just a few days before he dies, changes his will and changes up which of his sons rule where. Well, the change of the rule of his, of his will was positive for Archelaus and not positive for some of his other sons. So there began to be a dispute through all of Israel. They would eventually go all the way to Caesar in Rome to appeal for him to rule who would have rule over what. They'd have to, he, the Caesar of Rome would have to rule um, who would be in charge of what part and what part of his will would stand. So as he's going back to Israel... He's going back to significant unrest. It's political turmoil and the threat of violence. In fact, when Archelaus came to power after in Judea, after Herod died, there was a protest in Jerusalem. And Archelaus, a new ruler, overreacts and sends in his, his troops and his cavalry. They march in and they slaughter 3,000 pilgrims there at the temple. You just think about that. 3,000. Can you imagine an incident where 3,000 people get slaughtered? That is incredible. That is the type of guy Archelaus is. While he's in Rome, there was another uprising against his rule. Joseph is heading back. He's told by an angel to go back. Herod's dead. It's, I want you to go back now to Israel. Raise Jesus in Israel. But as he's going back, it's not a sigh of relief. In fact, in some ways, it's, there's more unrest than ever. There is certainly a, a, a tyrant in charge that is just as capable of violence 
as Herod. But God's told him to go back. So he puts one foot in front of the other. And he goes back, even though he's afraid. On the way back, he has to go before he gets this second dream. See, this episode, there's two dreams. He gets the full instruction in two parts. But he has to obey first. Then he gets the second part of the second dream where he's told to not stay in the southern part where Archelaus has power, but to go to the northern part in Galilee. And so Joseph returns to actually where he and Mary are from. He returns up to Galilee to avoid the rule of the violent, unstable Archelaus. But here's what I want you to see. Joseph had to obey before he got that part of the instruction. And what we see and what we can honor is Joseph's godliness, Joseph's courage that he did the right thing even though it was super scary. But there's something more that God used out of Joseph's obedience. See, Joseph was, his obedience was a part of something even bigger than he could have realized. Let's look at this last verse, verse 23. Here's what it says. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now we're here in the third episode of Dreams, and each of these dreams, Matthew, who's telling the story, Matthew tells us how what happens next after that dream fulfills a prophecy. So in the first dream, Joseph, in, in part one, we talked about this, the first dream, Joseph finds out that his betrothed Mary is pregnant and he knows the child is not his. And so he doesn't know what to do other than to break off the engagement, to divorce her, which would be like a divorce in, in their culture, to divorce her. And he's going to try and do it honorably, but he's, he's going to do it quietly, but he doesn't know what else to do. So he's going to divorce her. And an angel appears to him in a dream and says, no, Joseph, don't be afraid to make her your wife because the life that's in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph goes forward. He makes Mary his wife. And then Matthew says, this fulfilled the prophecy. And it quotes Isaiah chapter 7, that the virgin will conceive. God gave humanity a 700-year heads up that the Messiah would come by God placing life in a virgin womb. The second dream where Joseph is told to go down to Egypt, right after he does that, Matthew says this fulfilled prophecy. This is from Hosea chapter 11, 750 years before the time of Christ, where God says, I will call my son up out of Egypt. In other words, we're told that the Messiah would be the son of God and he would, be, he would come up from Egypt. So God is orchestrating these events where Joseph and Mary, they start in Nazareth, go to Bethlehem, have to go down to Egypt, and now they're going to come back out of Egypt and this time it says that through these dreams the first dream he comes back to Israel the second dream he's rerouted north to Nazareth up in Galilee and Matthew said and this also fulfilled what the prophets said now what prophecy is this third dream pointing to well this is really really fascinating because the word Nazareth um, if you were to say that word if you were a a Hebrew-speaking, an ancient Hebrew-speaking individual, when you said Nazareth, you would be reminded of 
um, the Hebrew word netzer. It's, got, it's the same word as that Hebrew word netzer, or it sounds just like that. And the word netzer is the word in Hebrew for branch. So um, if you are saying Nazareth, it's like you're saying branch town or Branchton. In fact, I actually Googled it because I was curious. There's actually a Branchton in Pennsylvania and it has one blinking light. It's a very, very small town. If you can even call it a town, it's so small. And that's a lot like Branchton or Nazareth, a very small town, and, um, but it's known as Branchton. Now, what's the big deal with that? That word Netzer or branch is a word that's associated with the Messiah. It's a word that's part of a key prophecy about the future Messiah. Let me read um, that particular um, prophecy for you. It is in um, Isaiah chapter uh, 11. Here's what it says. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a... See that word right there? A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's this passage saying? From Isaiah chapter 11, 700 years before the time of Jesus. Well, it was very apparent to the nation of Israel that there, the dynasty from King David, David whose father's name was Jesse, King David, there was a promise from God over King David that his kingdom through his line be a kingdom that would have no end. And there was a long line of kings. But in Isaiah chapter 11, it says that the family tree that comes from Jesse would be a stump. In other words, that dynasty would be like a family tree that gets cut down. And that's exactly what happened. Babylon came through, conquered Jerusalem and Israel, brought the people back into exile, and even when they returned, there was a different set of kings on the throne. King Herod at the time, he's not from the Davidic line. He's not part of the, the line of David. But in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there's a promise. From that stump, that family tree, the kingly family of Israel from Jesse, King David, from that stump will come new life. That dead stump, new life will come. A branch will come from that life, from that stump. A king that will go to the throne and will fulfill all those prophecies. And so what they're waiting for, they have now, for those 700 years as they're waiting, for those hundreds of years as they're waiting for how all those promises about King David, how all those promises will be fulfilled by God. They're holding on to that promise that from this stump there will come a branch, a king from the line of David. See, the, the Messiah would be a branch. So what this says is the fact that Jesus comes from Nazareth and will be called a Nazarene is linking Jesus as the Messiah to that prophecy that he's the branch. Think about this. Branch town is forever associated with Jesus. 
I mean, even to this day, the only reason we, the world still talks about Nazareth is because of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's used all over the world to this day. It's used in the, during the lifetime and ministry of Jesus and still used this day, Jesus of Nazareth. And every time that's spoken, it's basically saying Jesus of Branchtown. In other words, it's almost like it's saying Jesus the Branch. Jesus the king, Jesus from the line of David, Jesus, even though the stump of Jesse, there's a stump where the, the family tree of David was, there is a branch, there is a Netzer, there is a Nazarene, there is Jesus the branch that is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of those promises. In other words, Jesus would be the king. See, Joseph could not have possibly imagined that his obedience of leaving, I mean, it was probably scary going to Egypt. But over those years, they probably got settled. They probably built friendships. It was probably way safer in Egypt than all the turmoil that was happening in Israel. Especially with rulers that would be threatened by all of the things and the destiny over Jesus' life. But see, there was a part of God's plan that required Jesus to grow up in Nazareth so it could point to him as the Messiah, the true king. And so you see Joseph's obedience to follow, go back to Israel, to come up out of Egypt and go back to Israel, he had to be obedient even when it was scary, when it was fearful. He had to push through that fear. He had to have courage. What I love about this is part of the Christmas story is, you know, when we think of the Christmas story, you know, we think of just this kind of sweet little scene, the sweet nativity scene with Jesus asleep on the hay and, you know, maybe some shepherds with some fluffy sheep around and everyone's smiling and happy and there's angels around and wise men come and we just think of this kind of sweet kind of peaceful scene. But this whole Christmas story is an adventure story that required deep courage on the part of every single person involved. Because greatness requires courage. You know, it's important for us, if we're going to talk about the role of courage in our life, it's important to kind of define what we mean by courage. And last week we talked about uh, how we can escape worry. And we say worry is when we surrender control because uh, worry is, is when we realize we don't have control and we feel that tension of not having control. And so the answer to worry is to surrender that control. But courage is a little bit different. See, courage is when there's a step in front of us that we feel compelled to take. We know God wants us to take. We know that being obedient to God, we know the right thing would be to take that step. But it's scary. And we have to push through. Courage is pushing through that fear. You know, it's funny because some people think what courage is, is the absence of fear. That courage is looking at someone who's facing a difficult situation and, um, and they're just, they have no fear at all. And they think that, that that is what courage is. But that's not what courage is. That might be numbness or experience or recklessness or being uninformed. It could be ignorance. No, courage is pushing through fear. I think one of the most interesting examples of that that I've very been very inspired by is a, a speech 
that the General George Patton gave to his troops on the day before D-Day, the day before troops landed on Normandy. And George Patton gave a, uh, a famous speech where he rallied his troops. And it is a very colorful speech. I'm going to spare you from some of the very colorful parts of the speech. But I want to read you one of the most famous parts of this speech. Here's what he said. And you can imagine what's weighing on all of their minds as one of the, the, the most heroic moments in the history of warfare on this planet was about to take place the next day. What does he say? And the legend has it that he stepped up to a microphone before the sea of troops with no notes, just speaking right from his gut, right from his soul. Here's what Patton said. You are not all going to die. Only 2% of you right here today would die in a major battle. Death must not be feared. Death in time comes to all men. Yes, every man is scared in his first battle. If he says he is not, he's a liar. The real hero is the man who fights even though he is scared. Some men get over their fright in a minute under fire. For some it takes an hour, for some it takes days. But a real man will never let his fear of death overpower his honor, his sense of duty to his country, and his innate manhood. He goes on to tell them, hey, you're probably going to be scared. What courage is, is pushing forward even though you're scared. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is willing my legs to go forward even though my knees are knocking. That's what true courage is. See, for, um, for any type of greatness in our lives, it's going to require courage. And what, uh, there, there's a, a, it's a shame that so often in our life we make decisions based on comfort. And so we face a decision and we say, okay, um, which is going to make me comfortable and which is going to make me uncomfortable? Which is going to make me more comfortable or less comfortable? Which is, which is they, or maybe they both have discomfort, which is less discomfort. And so oftentimes we make decisions based on comfort and our life is kind of guided trying to navigate the most comfortable life possible. But if we let comfort guide our lives, that's a recipe for smallness of life. It's going to be smallness in our relationships. Because if I'm going to let comfort navigate my life, I am going to pretty much perpetually avoid conflict because it's uncomfortable. And if I avoid conflict, then all of my relationships are going to be shallow and small or brief because at some point every relationship has, is going to require courage. If I'm going to let comfort dictate my life, then I'm going to shy away from leadership and influence and impact. I'm going to shy away from risk. I'm going to shy away from making the right decision, even though it's hard, making the right decision, even though it's unpopular, the right decision, even though it's going to bring, um, it's going to bring criticism. 
And so what that's going to mean is just a smallness of influence, a smallness of impact. But see, here's what God wants for you. See, what, what Jesus says is he says, it brings glory to the Father for you to bear much fruit. He wants to do great things through your life. That may or may not mean riches, but that means richness. He wants you to have a richness in your life experience, a richness in your relationships, a richness in, in how you navigate your life. It, it may not mean recognition and popularity or fame, but it might, it'll probably mean influence. He wants you to, to impact those around you. He wants you to have influence over those. It may or may not mean success by worldly standards, but it will mean fruitfulness. And it will mean hearing from your Savior and your King, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, He wants greatness from your life. He wants to work great things for you. He, he has created you. You're his, his workmanship. He's got works prepared for you to do, and He wants to do great things, but it's going to require taking a step forward before you know the full pictures, taking a step towards fearful circumstances, pushing through fear, leaving discomfort behind, doing uncomfortable things. See, what courage is, courage is overruling your fear. It's when you're walking into a circumstance and all of your fears object to going any further and in courage, you overrule your fears and you walk on anyway. He has greatness that he wants to do through your life, but it will require courage. The king's mission for your life requires courage. And we should expect no less. Why? Because your king is courageous. The Christmas story is not just a sweet little story of a baby in a manger. It's your savior coming on a rescue mission for humanity. The creator breaking into his creation. Coming on a mission where he knows he will be rejected, humiliated, tortured, and died. He's coming on a rescue mission where he knows he will ultimately preach and he will be a stumbling block to many. He'll be betrayed. He'll be denied. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be beaten. He'll be whipped. He'll be mocked. He'll be stripped. He'll be humiliated. He'll be nailed to a cross. He'll die in agony, rejected. And that's not even the worst of it. He will be on that cross He'll be forsaken by Father God, the giver of life. He'll be the God that will be ripped apart, the Father from the Son. And he will have all of the wrath of God that you and I deserve. The wrath of the Almighty exhausted on him. And he courageously faced that battle without flinching. Without a complaint, without a, whine, without a single whine about what he was going through, he will face that like a lamb going to a slaughter with all of the courage of walking towards that battle, knowing he will be victorious by the power of God. That's who your king is. The most courageous expression of humanity there could possibly ever be. And you know what? He established a kingdom. And within his kingdom, there's a culture of courage. 
See, it passed on to his followers. And his followers said crazy things like, because I follow after my king, and because I'm no longer merely a citizen of this world, but I'm a citizen of heaven, then here's what that means for my life. To live is for Jesus Christ, and if I die, that's just gain, so this world can do nothing to me. That was kind of the, the steely nerve. That was kind of the guts of, his, of those who are part of his kingdom. And that followed on through the generations. That Those first couple generations of Christians that faced unbelievable torture. And they stood there unflinching saying, I will not deny Jesus Christ as my Lord. And they faced all kinds of things publicly as spectacles full of courage and faced their reward in heaven. How about through the, through the generations, the missionaries who have courageously taken the message of Jesus Christ, that message of hope that they were entrusted and they took that message to foreign lands. And there were many of them that packed their belongings in wooden boxes as the only things they took them because they brought wooden boxes knowing that is the very box their remains would return to their homeland, to their loved ones in there essentially Instead of a suitcase, they packed up a coffin and went to give their lives for Jesus Christ. That's the culture of the courageous king's kingdom. How about our brothers and sisters today who face real persecution, maybe worse than ever in history? How about our friends? These are brothers and sisters. We know these men personally, these men and women personally in places like Burkina, Burkina Faso, in ministries that we together as a church support. And we know these, these men who have brothers and sisters just a couple hours away in another part of their same country that await, mo that await any day terrorists could roll up in jeeps to their church and gun them down and yet they worship faithfully and we, and we help fuel the mission happening in Burkina Faso to this day. You see, you Christian have a heritage of courage where you push through difficult things in the name of your king because God has great fruit that he wants to produce through your life. We talk about and we celebrate the idea that God may be doing something historic in our midst. We might be a generation that might see him do something in our city. All signs are pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is on the move in South Florida, drawing churches together, drawing the armies of his kingdom together, preparing for a mighty move of the Holy Spirit, sweeping through our city. And do we don't think for a moment that that is not going to require great courage from his people. It's going to require courage because you know how city transformation happens? It doesn't just happen by the things we together do as a church, but it happens as you and I go out into our neighborhoods and families and friend groups and places of work, and we are the presence of Jesus Christ standing for justice and righteousness in those, in those industries, in those, in those offices, in those companies, in those organizations, on those teams, in those branches, as we are the representation of Jesus Christ, as we're revealing Revealing Jesus Christ, sometimes as the only representation of Jesus Christ in those contexts. As we reveal Jesus Christ, spread out like granules of salt, seasoning South Florida. And as you use that witness courageously 
sharing and representing the gospel in those contexts that God has placed you in. As you begin to see that context revolutionized and transformed and people coming to the gospel as that is transformed and over here this industry is transformed and this small business is transformed and, and this group of, 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 of workers and employees on this shift is transformed and this office building is transformed and this neighborhood is transformed and this family and this friend group is transformed. We start to see South Florida transformed but it's going to require acts of boldness and courage by every single one of God's people, the body of Christ that he has specifically placed in South Florida for this mission. It's going to require courage. So what's going to dominate our lives, Christian? As we see this year coming to a close, and we have a fresh new year very quickly approaching. What will guide you this next year? Be the comfortable path or the courageous path? Will we follow in the, the culture of the citizenship of the, the true citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Will we follow in our, our heritage of those who have a king named Jesus and be people of courage or will we slink back to what's comfortable? Well, how do we know what, um, whether we're people of courage? Well, let's ask, what right now in your life is the courageous step he's asking you to do? Just Will your legs forward in the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Will your legs forward even if your knees are knocking together? Just take that, that courageous step that he's just told you. Just take this next step. You don't have the whole path illuminated yet. Just take this step and overrule your fears. Push through them. Don't wait till the fears are gone. Push through it. And the power of the Holy Spirit and obedience just take a step of courage. Maybe it's just the courage to do the right thing right now. Almost always the right thing is going to take courage. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Maybe it's the courage to have integrity when no one else around you is. Maybe it's the courage to forgive someone. Maybe it's the courage to, to turn away from a sin that's dominating and enslaving your life. Maybe it's an addiction in your life that you need to have the courage to admit it to a trusted Christian friend and get help. Maybe it's the courage just to do the right thing right now. Maybe it's the courage, maybe it's relationally. Maybe it's the courage to set boundaries in a relationship. To deal with and no longer run away from the conflict in that relationship. To have a tough conversation in a relationship. To confront 
where someone is being treated poorly or oppressed. It's, it's to stand up in a relationship that's going to be costly. Maybe it's to put away people-pleasing and do, do the right thing, even though it's going, to, it's going to disappoint people that you want the approval from. Maybe, it's to, maybe there's a relationship that you need to break ties with. It's a, it's a friendship that you know is no longer healthy. Or maybe it's a dating relationship where you're just not on the same page spiritually and you need the courage to break that apart. Maybe it's the courage to repair a marriage. And one of the spouses is advocating to go and get counseling and the other spouse refuses. And you know what that is? It's just cowardly. Because going and getting counseling is scary because it's too vulnerable. And you can say it's something else, but it's just a lack of courage to expose yourself to someone who wants to help you. Maybe it's doing the right thing, maybe it's relational, or maybe it's being overt with the hope you've been entrusted with, overt with the gospel. Maybe for some, it's no longer being an undercover Christian where you keep your faith quiet and silent, where the only whisper of your faith is a piece of jewelry you wear, but maybe it's more boldly living out your faith in front of people. Maybe it's just simply the courage to invite a friend in to your church family. Maybe it's the courage to start having more overt spiritual conversations with your family and your friends and your neighbors. Whatever it is, God wants to produce great fruit in your life and it's going to require courage. You know, we talked about those early Christians that faced persecution and there was one in particular I want to tell you about a story because it's, it's echoed throughout history. It's one of the church fathers, this very significant man in that second generation of Christians. The man's name is Polycarp. And Polycarp actually sat at the feet of, of the apostle John. Like John trained him. The apostles themselves knew Polycarp when he was young and raised him up. And he became a significant figure in that early church. And there were some people opposing that local church where he was a pastor and they're opposing it and they wanted to, to snuff out that church and they did something that had the opposite effect. A mob dragged Polycarp before them and they, they wanted to just kill Polycarp. They feel like if they killed Polycarp, then the church would fall apart. And so they dragged him before the magistrate and they roughed him up. And then the magistrate said, look, all you have to do is, is make a sacrifice to these pagan gods. You just have to deny Jesus Christ and, and we won't kill you. And Polycarp looked at them and calmly said, 86 years I've served my Lord and he has never wronged me. How could I possibly now blaspheme my king and my savior? And they tied him to a stake and lit a fire and there he died boldly and then met his king face to face. That's your heritage. You have a savior and a king and you live for him and your citizenship is in heaven and we're called to courage in the meantime. That is our honor and our joy. Let's walk in the footsteps of our King Jesus. For some of you today, the first courageous step is to make Jesus your king and your savior. What that means is the courage to admit you can't save yourself and the courage to let Jesus run your life. And I want, to invite to, I want to invite you 
to surrender, find forgiveness and salvation for eternity and surrender your life to the most courageous king in the history of the universe, Jesus Christ, who had the courage to find, to bring you salvation. I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus. So if that's you and you want to do that, would you just take a moment, would, whatever, wherever you're at, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And maybe that's you. You said, man, I'm, I'm ready to make Jesus my savior. I'm, I've, I've been on the fence before. I've had questions, but I just want to take that courageous step. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that I'm forgiven. And if that's you, then you can just pray this right now. Become a follower of King Jesus. Become a part of his kingdom. Just pray this simply right there in your, wherever you're at, at your computer, on your couch. Maybe you're sitting here tonight. Wherever you're at, just give your life to Jesus today. Just pray this silently in your heart. Just repeat these words. Say, Jesus, I make you my king. I believe you saved me. I believe your death on the cross took my punishment brought me forgiveness. I believe you rose from the dead. I choose to believe it. I believe that you had victory over sin and death. And I want to follow you on an adventure in preparation to spend eternity with you in heaven. I follow you in your name. Amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, I want you to know that you just made the most courageous, most adventurous decision of your life, the best decision of your life. It affects your eternity. And so we want to celebrate that together. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to cityrev.org faith. You can click that right there on the screen or go there to the comments. Here's why. We want to celebrate with you. It's just going to ask you a couple questions when you go there because we want to send you a Bible and go on this journey with you. So would you take a second? And click on that link and let us walk on this journey with you. Church family, we are going to continue in a time of worship. And we are going to sing about our incredible Savior, Jesus Christ. And celebrate that in that moment when he came, in that incredible night that he was born. It was the most incredible, awe-striking moment when our King entered into his creation to save us. So let's worship together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.